Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Job's final discourses in chapters 29 through 31. And we're delighted to be joined today by Dr. Edward Greenstein. Ed Greenstein is Professor Emeritus of Bible at Bar-Ilan University, where he served as professor since 2006. He is also the author of this new translation of the Book of Job, published by Yale University Press, which is an impressive work. You know, in blurb speak, we would call this a virtuoso oh, performance. Nice. Uh, so I'm really <laughs> excited to have Dr. Greenstein with us. And one of the things that uh, I've got to know at a little bit, he lives in Israel. He's, he's calling in with us from Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Um, but I got, I've got to know him a little bit at the SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature Conferences. In Which is, for our listeners who don't know what that is. I mean, that's the big conference with all the biblical scholars. We right. all get together. All the nerdy scholars. We all nerd right. out on the Bible for a few days. <laughs> right. But um, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate from Ed at those conferences is, you know how it is, you know, sometimes after someone gives a paper, mm -hmm. then... <laughs> you know, someone raises their hand uh -huh. and you get to know these different scholars over the years. And there are those scholars who, when they raise their hand, everybody just kind of slumps in their right. seats because they know it's going to be more of a comment than a question. Right. Yes. Right. Yes, yes. But that's not the case with Ed. When Ed raises his hand, uh, I always get to the edge of my seat and I see other people do it too, because he has this insightful way of just getting at the heart of the issue, which makes the person's paper better and helps all of us understand what's going on better. So I'm so grateful to have him with us. I'm a little bit intimidated to be the one asking him the questions <laughs> uh, today. Um, but thank you so much, for Ed, for being with us today. Pleasure to be with you. So Ed, what first drew you to studying the book of Job? Okay, well, I'll try to answer briefly. Um, when I was an undergraduate and studied uh, philosophy of religion, among other things, um, I, um, I realized that one of the major theological questions people ask is the problem of evil, or the way we often put it, the problem of innocent suffering. How is it that there are good people and bad things happen to them? And, uh, and, there, and on the other side, why is it that there are bad people who prosper? Hmm. Um, I continued to be uh, preoccupied with this question. And then in the early 1970s, I was privileged to spend a year studying the text of the book of Job in Hebrew uh, with uh, the, the man I consider the greatest Hebrew philologist, that is the student of uh, ancient uh, Hebrew text and other related languages of our time, uh, Professor H. L. Ginsberg, may rest in peace. Hmm. And it was a very intense course. He covered a lot of ground because he he didn't uh, he didn't tolerate uh, you know questions or challenges very well. Um, <laughs> but he gave us a tremendous amount of material. And even though I didn't understand everything he he taught at the time, I wrote it down in a notebook and I learned uh, as much as I could. And I read other commentaries and uh, I kind of. I realized that this was a text that brought together my various interests. Um, that is, um, uh, philosophy, theology on the one hand, uh, literary study and rhetoric on the on, on 
on another hand, and if we can add another couple of hands, right, we've got um, uh, linguistics and philology. And yeah. so it brought together uh, many of my special interests and, um, and abilities. And over the years, I did more and more with the Book of Job. It was one of the first uh, courses um, that I taught uh, in college, even before I finished my doctorate. And I, at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where I taught uh, for 20 years, um, I was able to give a graduate course in Job in the late 1980s. And I continued this interest. And, uh, and as I was able to publish research um, on various topics in Job, um, my, the intensity of my work in Job uh, continued to grow until I put out uh, this translation just a couple of years ago. Um, I still intend to complete uh, full commentaries on Job. Um, but for now, uh, you know, this is the way I understand Job today. That's great. And I, I, I like the way that you put that. I mean, you need multiple hands <laughs> to pick up Job, right? You need, <laughs> right? Uh, and what it's in the book, it presses you really far in each of those different directions, right? Theologically, as far as you're going to go, it digs into the deepest possible questions. Um, but also in terms of translation and philology, right? I mean, you talk a, a good bit about that in your translation, just how difficult it is to translate the book of Job. Um, but then finally, the literary piece, right? We've got a book that it combines prose and poetry and all these different genres, and it's drawing on different texts. And so in each one of those elements, we're getting pushed to the limits. And so you have to pull all that together, uh, which I think you do a fine job in your translation. But you also point Thank out you. just how hard that is to do. Uh, I think it's it's also worth, uh, I think, pointing out something that Ed mentioned Um is that, you know, he said that this is his most, uh, let's say, updated attempt of how he understands the book of Job in his translation, right? Right, Which is an important point, because often when people come to an English translation, let's say, of a book of the Bible or of the Bible itself, right, they may think that they are getting an unmediated access to the biblical text, Right. right? But Ed, you just mentioned basically that your translation is is an attempt to put forward the meaning of the text as well. That's right. It's the best that I can do right now. And it's not anybody else's book of Job, right? Um, As you know, I do some rearrangement of the text, which I think is necessary um, in order to restore what I believe is the book of Job when it first became a complete book, the way, more or less the way that we have it now. Um, And of course, the the, uh, many, uh, many, many, at many places, the language is is extremely challenging, and some and and sometimes we all, we can only guess at what the text uh, should be and what the meaning of that text is, and we do our best. Um, it should be founded at least on as much uh, research and um, and study as one can apply, but it's extremely difficult, and uh, one will change one's mind as. Uh, one goes through, you know, as one continues to learn, if one continues to work on the book of Job, as I plan to do. Well, let's dig into the text a little bit. And I think as we go along, some of the other aspects of your translation will come to the fore and we can talk a little bit more about them. But we're looking today particularly at Job's final discourse. So that's chapters 29 to 31. How do you see Job's final discourse fitting into the book as a whole? Okay. Um, 
This takes us uh, to the, uh, to one of the larger uh, motifs, or I would even say strains, uh, rhetorical strains within the book. And that is that um, Job in chapter 9 begins um, a toying with the idea of suing God, right? Suing God for justice. And what he, what he, what, what, the reason that he wants to sue God is to find out what it is that he thinks God is holding against him and for which God is afflicting him. Now, we know from the beginning of the book that God isn't punishing him for anything. This is not about justice. Okay, but Job and his friends don't know that. So Job thinks that if he can get God to appear with him in court, then Job will make accusations of God, and God then will have to defend God's self by answering those accusations, by telling Job what he thinks Job has done to deserve punishment. Now, in chapter 9, he only toys with the idea because God is too intimidating. And, and anyway, who would ever be able to bring God into court? However, in, in chapter uh, 13, he, he takes this very seriously, and he realizes, I have nothing to lose, right? Mm -hmm. even, if, um, I, even if I die in the process, at least I will have um, adhered to my integrity, and I will be challenging God to either present God's case against me, and then I will answer, or I will present my case against God, and then God will have to reply. Okay, now the way that you you get um, the um, uh, somebody else to respond to a lawsuit is either you bring witnesses against uh, against uh, that that rival, uh, but you, but Job can't do that in the case of God, or you bring actual evidence, and the best that Job can do is to give his own testimony based on his own experience of what he believes is divine injustice. And so in order to get God to appear, he swears. Now, this is what we call the oath of innocence. Right. Um, one way to, to, uh, to compel um, somebody to reply to you in, in, in a court setting is to swear that you didn't do anything wrong and that you didn't do anything that would warrant being so severely afflicted as Job is. And so... Uh, chapters 29 through 1 highlight in the middle, and for the well, basically from the chapter 30 in the middle through the end of chapter, almost basically to the end of chapter 31, he swears up and down that he didn't commit any of the most serious trespasses that would warrant being punished severely. And he thinks that he's thereby... Um, uh, um, um, moving the, the, the ball into God's court so that God would literally have to respond to this lawsuit. And, and so he swears, I, I, I didn't do this. I didn't, I, I didn't fornicate, right? I didn't, uh, I, I didn't uh, commit violence against anybody. I was good to other people, right? I was, I was very, very good. And, um, and there's no reason that I should have to suffer like this. And he thinks that God is going to have to respond to it. And in fact, in the end, God does respond to it. Mm -hmm. I think that this is one of the reasons, not the only reason. The book of Job is very complex. There are lots of different things going on. The lawsuit isn't the only thing going on. But right. one of the reasons that, that, that God um, sees fit 
to respond to Job in the end is that it's a response to the lawsuit. And in that response, I'll just say it very briefly, um, which begins in chapter 38, he um, accosts Job and basically says, where were you when I created the world, et cetera, et cetera. And what he means by that is, Job, you don't have any direct knowledge of me, because when I revealed my true self uh, uh, to the world, you might say, was only at the time of creation, at the time that I used wisdom and created the world. And you see a, you see a very nice um, depiction of that scene at, in the middle of Proverbs chapter 8, around verse 21, verse 22. It's not the only place we see it in the book. And Eliphaz, or Eliphaz, in chapter 15, the middle of chapter 15, also refers to that same idea. It says, how could you know things, Job? You weren't the first human born, right? You weren't there when God created the world. And so God shows Job that he doesn't have standing as a witness to testify against him because he doesn't have direct knowledge of God's true self, mm. which was only revealed at the time of creation. Other than that, uh, your experience of God is, you might say, mediated by all sorts of other things. Right. And therefore, God throws Job's case out of court pro forma, you know, because he doesn't have legal standing to make these claims against God. But so God also never answers Job's questions, not in God's speeches there and not in God's uh, speeches uh, uh, to uh, Job's, Job and his friends uh, at the very end of the book. Now, we're not um, talking with you specifically about the divine speeches, but of course you can't avoid the divine speeches when you're talking about any part of Job. Is there a certain irony, though, in God making that argument while actually appearing to Job? And as he, God describes his engagement with creation, revealing aspects of his character to Job. I agree. I agree. The, the, you have, we always have to remember that the book of Job is not written on the basis of Greek philosophy, you know, where consistency and coherence, you know, are prized, uh, you know, as uh, as the kind of sine qua non of any kind of logic. Uh, there, there are many contradictions in Job. Ed, in Job chapter 29, uh, Job takes us back to the time before his affliction, right? So he says this in verse, we read in verse one, Job again took up his, his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head and by his light, I walked through darkness. When I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the almighty was still with me, when my children were around me. And he keeps going on. Yes. Um, what kinds of actions does Job claim made him righteous? He goes on to talk about all the ways in which he was righteous and just. How does he depict his righteousness? Okay. He understands himself to have been and probably was. Uh, there's no reason we should you know, challenge him on this. He was a leading figure in his community. Where he lived, he was the justice of the peace. He was a magistrate. He extended himself to the needy, and he makes a point of that very explicitly. Right, um, um, verse uh, twelve in chapter twenty-nine in my translation. When I would rescue the needy, crying out in the orphan with no one to help him. When I'd receive the vagabond's blessing, someone just you know passing by in a hobo, and bring joy to the heart of the widow. 
And he, and then he, he goes on to say, I clothe myself in righteousness and justice. And this is the this this exactly is the point. I'm reading now from my translation of chapters verses 14 to 16. I clothe myself in the right, and it clothed me. Justice clothed me like a robe and a headdress. Eyes was I to the blind, and legs I was to the lame. I was the patron of the poor and pursued the complaint of the stranger. This is, for me, a very critical line. What it means is that even if someone came from out of town and had no friends and no relatives and no support, if that person had a claim against someone else, I, as the local magistrate, would investigate it for that person. I wouldn't say, you don't belong here. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't need to deal with this. Just the opposite. He saw an occasion to do justice, and he took advantage of that opportunity to do justice. And that is something that is very important to Job. The uh, uh, One of the paramount virtues is doing justice. And now, why does he describe how he's been, um, you know, so, um, uh, how in the past he was so respected, and now he's so disrespected? Because this change can, comes about because God has afflicted him. When someone is afflicted in that society, and unfortunately many societies even today, people who are in a bad way are assumed to be disliked by God or being penalized by God in some way. We know that that's not the case. The book of Job you know, is, is meant to present us with an argument against that kind of assumption. But okay. in the case of Job, People um, withdraw from him. They, they see him as stigmatized. He describes this at length in chapter 19. And there is a parallel between some of what he says in chapter 19 and some of what he says here in, in this particular speech in chapters 29 to 31. And what Job is saying now is that God has done him a double injustice. Not no. only does he believe that God is afflicting him for no good reason, but God, but God is preventing him through this stigmatization of being prevented from doing justice in his own community where he was respected as the mm -hmm. one everyone would trust to do justice for others. Yeah, it's interesting that in the prologue, where we get this depiction of Job and his righteousness, the emphasis seems to be on his sacrifices, right? His ritual acts of righteousness that like he goes over and beyond in terms of he even offers sacrifices for potential sins that yes. his children may have offered, may have committed. But where, here, do you mind if, to... if I interrupt you yes. for a second? Yeah. Where, where, in, in what circumstances might his children? have committed these offenses. See, not on the outside, but in their speech. Right, in their speech. Right. And you see that honest speech and good speech and proper speech is a theme throughout the entire book. And to me, you'll, you'll pardon me for piggybacking on this, uh, to me, the book of Job is more about inte the integrity and honesty in speech yeah. than about anything else. The test of Job is whether he will curse God or not when all of his blessings are taken away from him. Yeah. Um, he's concerned about the way that his children speak. At the beginning of the book, it's emphasized by the narrator that despite all of the terrible things that 
that that happened to Job, he did not sin with his lips. And in chapter 27 and various places before that, he makes a point of insisting that he only speaks with integrity. Yeah. And uh, and we see in the end that God says to Job's friends, you didn't speak in honesty about me. Michona, the, in Hebrew, it's an adverb. You didn't speak in honesty about me the way that my servant, servant Job did. And yeah. I think that the radical uh, point of the book is that the author is saying, the poet, poet is having uh, God say, I appreciate honest speech. It may not be correct. It, yeah. It's not the truth, but it's what you believe to be true. And that's what you should be saying. It's yeah. truth in God talk as well as truth in every other kind of talk. And to me, you know, this is a very important point. Yeah. But in chapter one, when yes. the narrator wants to depict Job's righteousness, he points to this, these sacrifices, right? He's, he's doing the right rituals. But yes. Job, when he tries to establish his own righteousness in chapter 29, and that's going to yes. be a big theme in 29 to 31. Because like you said, you know, this is his, in a sense, closing argument to try and force God to respond. I don't think he... Re- he refers to any kind of ritual actions. Instead, he's primarily referring to his care for the poor, his um, his That's support right. for righteousness in his community. So it seems like he's making, this is a different, well, is this a different type of righteousness that he's appealing to here? This is, this is the kind of righteousness that he believes that God would want from him, because this is where he was outstanding. He knows that, that he made a point always of trying to do good by others. But there is one place in this speech. It's in chapter 31, uh, verses um, 26 and following, 26 to 28. It's on page 131 in my translation, where he, he does allude not to the ritual acts, but to proper um, the proper worship of God. He mm-hmm. says, uh, one of the things that if he ever did, he would want to be punished for in his oath of innocence is if I ever looked at the light as it's shown, I think it's a reference uh, by the language. I think it's a reference to the stars. I give you a, a footnoted reference. I think it alludes to Isaiah 13, 10 or the moon as it moved so nobly. If my heart was secretly lured, so my mouth kissed my hand. That is, I worship, I adored uh, those things that weren't God, but things that God created, you know, like the uh, celestial lights, etc. That, too, is a criminal offense for denying the deity above them. That's how I understand it. And here, I would say, uh, you know, Job shows his concern for proper theology, uh, that the, the, the worship yeah. of God and not those things that God has created, not uh, emblems of God. Uh, but God, God's self. Yeah, yeah. And we may get a chance to come back to that in a second. Uh, Sticking here in chapter 29, you talked about the importance of 29 verse uh, 16, and I championed the cause of the stranger. And you were talking about that in terms of Job had an important role in his community that God in some sense has stolen from him in terms of enforcing justice. But is there also an implicit accusation of God here? Because Job has a cause, right? Reeve is the Hebrew there. And he has been bringing that cause to God 
And God hasn't been responding, right? He hasn't been listening. Job is saying, hey, even a stranger, I would listen to their cause. I would seek the righteous and a righteous outcome. But here you are, God, not listening to me. Do you think that that's going on here? Yes, I think that it, it implied in this, implied in this, and it's good that you bring it out. Implied in this is the, the notion that uh, we're all expected to do justice. And so I would expect justice from you as well. But of course, because, Job yeah. says that in much more explicitly in other places. So I didn't make a, a particular point of that here, but I, I absolutely agree with you that, that it should be an implication and one should infer it here. All right. And so in 2919, we read, my roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. Now, you point out in your translation that uh, this connects plant imagery throughout the debate between Job and his friends. Yes. How does the plant imagery contribute to the debate? And is there a connection here with, uh, does this image go back to Psalm chapter one, where you have this idea of the blessed person who is like a tree yeah. by the water? Yes, it was right. a well-watered tree. Yeah. Yes, uh, because the idea is, and you see it in Jeremiah, uh, you know that uh, God is a source of, uh, of of life, a source of living water, and uh, and the righteous uh, will uh, benefit from that. I, I believe that uh, you know Psalm one and uh, there's a parallel passage in Jeremiah, a similar passage, right? Are you know, um, that that imagery lies behind it. However, it is it's not that Job just brings it up. Uh, Job's friends bring it up as well. Uh, Bildad, uh, for example, in uh, chapter eight, uh, develops that idea very, very, you know, at, at, at some length, right? That the righteous, you know, are, um, you know, enjoy, you know, sunshine and 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 water, you know, and they they thrive for that mm -hmm. reason. Uh, Job uh, very poignantly uh, compares uh, the human lifespan uh, to that of a tree. A tree, if it's, you know, it's if some of it is cut off can grow back, but a human once cut off can't grow back. So that's also in, in Job's mm -hmm. mind. Um, there, there, there are, I think that there definitely, you know, is, uh, this, uh, motif, uh, um, throughout the book. And it comes from wisdom literature in general. Uh, Psalm one, as you know, you know, is very often considered a, a wisdom psalm. And, um, and uh, Job, of course, is one of the paramount wisdom works. And, uh, one is not surprised. To find this image um, um, developed uh, quite a bit in the book of Job. Yeah, thank you, Ed, for reminding my colleague <laughs> Will Kinds that Job is the one of the paramount wisdom works. <laughs> We're not going to go down that whole road. Uh, <laughs> I, I know what debate is being referred to, and yeah. I'm not engaging in it right now. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, okay, let's let's jump to the end of the chapter, chapter twenty nine, verse twenty five, and here's how the NRSV translates this verse: "I chose their way and sat as chief." And I live like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. And this is a place where you disagree with the NRSV. Uh, and you say that that last clause there, like one who comforts mourners, uh, is inapt. It doesn't fit. Could you explain uh, why you think that and then what you suggest instead? Yes. Okay. So I'll first I'll read you my translation of 2425, and then I'll, I'll, I'll directly answer your question. If I smiled their way, they would not swerve. If I lit up my face, they fulfilled every word. In other words, I would smile and they would you know, go along with me on everything. I would choose their path and sit at their head. 
people would follow me. I was the natural leader, the acknowledged leader in my community. I'd be poised like the king in an army. And that I think is crucial. As, uh, and then wherever I'd lead them, they'd camp. The idea that they would follow him. Now, the idea throughout this whole, these two verses and throughout this whole passage, frankly, is that people would respect him and uh, do his bidding. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that should be the, the meaning of the second part of, or the, the final part of verse 25 as well. That is, I'd be poised like a king in the army. What does a king do in the army? What's the relationship there? King of the, the king in the army leads, right? Leads. And therefore, without making very much of an adjustment in the Hebrew, but I do make a small adjustment, but it's all, uh, it's all within a biblical idiom, a tested biblical idiom. Uh, wherever I would lead them, they would camp. And in other words, they would follow my lead. Um, to, tr- to, tr- to, to insert here the idea of comforting mourners has nothing to do with the point that Job is making in general about how the people would follow him. It doesn't fit right in here. Yes, it, it, it fits with the idea of being a good person and serving others in the community, but it doesn't fit into this more immediate context. And uh, for me, uh, the first guide to interpretation should always be to try to make sense within the immediate um, context and then to try to uh, understand, just as you asked me about, uh, you know, how things fit into how chapters 29 to 31 fit into the whole book, how uh, a smaller passage fits into the larger passage and how that passage fits into the larger work, et cetera, et cetera. One always has to be looking both at the particulars and also at the uh, more general uh, right. framework and when one does interpreting. And that's why I translate it the way I do. Right. Now, but one of the things that you do in your translation that is one of the things I appreciate the most about it is that you're also always taking into account another form of context, which is then how do we understand this within the broader Hebrew Bible amongst those other texts that we do have that give us some idea of how these idioms work? Because, I mean, we're working with some kind of Job is working with some kind of king metaphor. And so what are we drawing out of that king metaphor? So following the kind of lead that you offer in your translation of thinking about, okay, where do we see this, these ideas elsewhere? As I was reading, I was thinking about uh, Psalm 72, which emphasizes that the king is supposed to provide justice for others, or the advice that King Lemuel's mother gives him in Proverbs 31 to defend the rights of the poor and needy. And even this interesting idea to let them drown their misery and drink, if that's how we understand what's going on in Proverbs 31. So I wonder if if you think about it in that context, if this idea of a king comforting mourners might actually fit here. Okay. I'm not saying that it doesn't fit at all. What I'm saying is that you're providing two different contexts, uh-huh. right? The context that you're providing is that of associations with other texts uh, yeah. about kings. And the fact that there is a well-known theme, uh, which you know very well, I'm sure, uh, not only in the Bible, but in ancient Near Eastern literature, that it's one of the functions of the king and one of the things that they take pride in, that they take care of the weak, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they provide justice you know, for those who need justice. Um, you can read it in the prologue uh, and the epilogue to the Code of Hammurabi, Right from way before the Bible, from the 
uh, 18th century before the Common Era in Babylonia. And you can read it in the Bible in many places, such as the ones that you quoted. Um, Psalm 72 and, and uh, yes, the beginning of, uh, of Proverbs 31. However, to, to, uh, from my point of view, the immediate context, unless there's a direct allusion to another text, for example, if the text that you had shown me um, had an allusion to it specifically to language of comforting mourners, which it doesn't, um, okay, uh, it, it deals with uh, helping the needy but, and, uh, and doing justice for the poor, etc., but not, uh, the orphan, the widow, but not comforting mourners. If I found comforting mourners there, I would think twice about it. But because of the immediate context here, which takes precedence over associations with distant texts, I translate the way that I do. It's always possible that my judgment is wrong and that you won't agree with it. Uh, but that I'm explaining to you how I yeah. thought when I translated this way. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to explain it because I can see the logic there and it, it does make sense. And I, when I was looking at those other texts, I was looking hard to find some explicit mention of comforting mourners and it's not there. So that's definitely true. I'm, I'm just loath to lose this language because it adds to this idea of um, Job implicitly charging God because here he, if he as king would comfort those who mourn, and yet he's not receiving comfort from God. And I do think comfort is a major theme that, you know, Nacham, that word for comfort comes up over and over again. So that's why I'd love to keep this, but I can definitely understand why you would read it in a different way. So thanks for walking us through that. Uh, let's move on then to uh, the next chapter. So chapter 31 to 15. So Job is describing now after chapter 29, which describes his contributions to making a more just society. Uh, in chapter 30, he starts to describe how society has turned against him. So he talks about yes. how the young men mock him and how the rabble rise against him in verse 12. So when we compare that, the depiction of society in chapter 30 with that in 29 and its kind of idyllic vision of society. It seems like there may be a little bit more going on here. Could Job's point here be at least in part that without his positive influence, society is falling apart around him. Is that one way in which Job is really pressing his point on God? Well, he, he is he is saying that um, you have stigmatized me. You've caused me to be stigmatized in my society, and therefore I am not able to lead. And, the, and what is implied then is that people who would ordinarily not be respected are, 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 are receiving some kind of stature in the community. You know, people I never would hire even to, you know, to, to, you know, to watch my sheep with the dogs. Um, young urchins, right, are uh, who would be quiet when I would appear in the past. You know, now are 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 given free reign, you know, to act out and to misbehave. And so you could see that, if you like, as the social fabric of his community um, uh, being uh, uh, torn apart, at least to some extent, uh, because Job isn't there uh, to provide moral leadership. Yes, um, I definitely would agree with that. Although I think it's, again, you know, um, an underlying implication. Uh, mm -hmm. For Job, um, 
it's it's very personal. Mm. People who once respected me no longer respect me. And uh, people who were once close to me now withdraw from me. And he's seeing himself as being isolated. And this isolation right, is one of the afflictions of Job that's been recognized at least by you know, some interpreters. The, the idea, though, is, is that Job used to be you know, very well integrated into a society, and it was good for the society. Now he is uh, ostracized from the society, and uh, there's nothing he can do about it unless God changes the situation. Yeah. Uh, Ed, in chapter 30, verse 20, Job says, I cry to you and you do not answer me. I stand and you merely look at me. Why in the book of Job does God take so long to answer Job? It's not so chapter 38, is it, that God finally responds right. to Job? I think one has to look at the, the the structure of the book of Job. It is a test. Okay, it doesn't. They don't. You don't use the word test because the test is described. You don't need to say it's a test. It's obvious mm. that it's a test. Mm. Every, you can, everybody can see it. And the test is if uh, Job is afflicted or if all of his blessings are remo- are removed from him and he suffers, is he going to curse God or not? Right and God thinks not, because Job has, at least uh, in his earlier experience, always um, maintained his uh, his goodness and his piety. Well, regard and God claims, regardless of whether he was blessed or not, the Satan or the Satan is God's adversary among the angels, and gives the opposite point of view. The only reason that Job has uh, has been uh, behaving is because you have blessed him. Take away the blessings, and he will curse you. And so, uh, we the whole the test right continues. The test is prolonged by interrupting the test with the dialogues between Job and his friends. Three friends come to sit and try to comfort him, but of course, as Job says, their comfortings are are, are no comfortings at all. He sits with them, and he speaks out, not against God directly, but against the the day that he was born, the night he was conceived, which I see not as a curse of God, but as a replacement for the curse of God. In other words, I won't curse God, but I will say that God should not have given life to people if their life was going to be uh, replete with with affliction and suffering, with misfortune. And so the debate goes back and forth between Job holding off his friends on the one hand, but also carrying on a one-sided conflict with God on the other hand. And God doesn't respond to it. And God doesn't respond until the end because we want to see how the whole thing plays out. There's no book. Right? One, of the, you know, the first, uh, one of the first uh, rules, you might say, of composition is that you you know that you want to keep it going as long as you want to keep it going, <laughs> and so uh, but in order to play out all of these terrific, po- highly poetic and troped speeches, right? Uh, God cannot respond to Job until the end. But in the end, you know, after it's all been played out, 
God does respond. And of course, we are all surprised. Uh, and Job is, of course, tremendously disappointed. And we may also be disappointed that God doesn't reveal to Job the basis uh, for uh, his having been afflicted. Uh, we know it, but none of the characters in the book know it, except right. for God and the Satan, who, interestingly, doesn't appear at all at the end of the book. Right. So in the, the latter half of chapter 30, Job describes in great detail uh, his suffering, which is something he's done several times throughout the dialogue. But then in chapter 31, he does something different. Uh, he uses um, what is often called a uh, self-curse. In your translation, you call it an oath of innocence. In most of the chapter, in chapter 31, is, re is these repeated oaths in which Job wishes some curse on himself if he has done something wrong. And so often there's a connection between the curse and the wrongdoing. So if we looked at 31, 21 to 22, he says, if I have raised my hand against the orphan because I saw I had supporters at the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. So there's this connection between the, right. the wrongdoing of raising his hand and the curse of his, his arm basically being dislocated. Um, so is when Job is doing this in chapter 31 with this self-curse, this oath of innocence, is he drawing on a broader genre from the ancient world? And how does that, if so, how does that genre work? What is he trying to accomplish here? Okay, I spoke about it a little bit earlier when I spoke about the, the lawsuit. Yeah. Okay, I don't see it as a, a self-curse because Job isn't interested in cursing himself. He's mm -hmm. only interested in threatening himself with a curse should he commit mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. of these terrible things. Now, as you know, and, and which is implicit in your question, right? Th this, uh, this is part of an ancient Near Eastern um, uh, motif, which is most obvious in what we call the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Now, that is uh, when, when uh, the dead uh, would come uh, to the next world, uh, they would be met there with scales where their deeds are weighed, etc., or whether they're you know, good or bad, and they would be judged. And they would, have, they would swear uh, to not have committed uh, many terrible things which would make their existence, whatever we want to see that existence in the afterlife, you know, be miserable or not, right? So if they could have a blessed or a, an accursed um, afterlife, depending on what they had done, but they would, they would, they would be asked and then they, and they would swear, you know, to whether they had committed these terrible things or not. And, uh, but from a legal point of view, uh, we know this from Mesopotamia, we know this uh, from the Bible, uh, Exodus chapter 22, for example, if um, if you're asked by, toward the end of 22, if you're asked by a, uh, a a neighbor, let's say, to watch that person's animal and something happens to the animal or, or, or some property that you were asked to watch, uh, um, and it, somehow it's, it's gone, right? So your neighbor comes to you and says, I demand this uh, property from you. And you swear that you didn't take it. And if, since there are no witnesses and there's no um, material evidence, your, your oath of innocence is sufficient to get you off the hook. And we find it also in the Talmud. Um, there's a, you know, one of the fa most famous chapters in, the, in the, the, the Babylonian Talmud 
you know, rabbinic literature, you know, is uh, that two people are holding on to one garment. And this one says, I saw it first. This one says, I saw it first. This one says, I found it. It's mine. The other one says, I found it. It's mine. They each have to swear that neither of neither of them owns more than half of the garment. So I swear I own half a garment. And the other one says, I own half a garment. Then they can each take the half a garment. Right? The oath is all that they have where in the absence of actual witnesses uh, or to, um, uh, to uh, material evidence. And that's what Job is doing here. Right? Since he doesn't have witnesses that he can bring into court with him to support his case against God, he only has his own experience of what's happened to him. And all the, you know, people can see what happened to him, but they don't know that it's punishment from God. They don't know whether Job has done anything wrong or not. Uh, at the beginning, uh, Eliphaz uh, does not accuse Job of having done anything wrong. Bildad accuses Job's children of done so, having done something wrong, but not Job himself. And uh, and so far, this is in the first cycle of speeches, so far says in verse 11, verse 6, God has made you forget your sin. In other words, I believe you, Job, that you don't believe that you've done anything wrong. But God made you forget it, and so maybe you did something wrong. Okay. Um, and, and then, of course, afterwards, when Job stubbornly refuses to admit any guilt and to, and to, uh, to charge God with injustice, uh, the friends all assume that Job had, must have committed something wrong. And they, then they all get on his case. Right. Um, but he, Job is convinced he didn't do anything to warrant it. And if he has done something to warrant punishment, he thinks that by taking this oath of innocence, he is, as I said before, throwing the ball, the ball into God's court, and God then will have to appear and to tell him what he's done wrong. Yeah. That's what he desperately wants to know. Right. So throwing the ball in God's court or throwing down the gauntlet or however we might think about it, it's pushing God to respond. Right. So he is, um, as part of this self-curse, he lists all these things that he hasn't done. And one of the things uh, that he addresses is in verse 13, the way he has treated his slaves. He says, "If, if I've rejected the cause of my male or female slaves when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? And did not one fashion us in the womb? I mean, this seems like a pretty remarkable verse, um, given that Job sees both himself, he's a nobleman, or I think you called him a, a kind of magistrate or, you know, a, a type uh, of... I would say that he was, he was a nobleman for his time, yes. Sure. Yeah. So he has this really high status, uh, but he acknowledges that both uh, his male and female slaves uh, both have the same origin. But he kind of, in one way, there's a kind of equalizing rhetoric. Um, right. is, is that... I mean, is this uh, common in the ancient Near East? Is it peculiar that we see this uh, in the Book of Job? I mean, I know sometimes you know you you hear people say, "Oh, the Bible is alone in its high regard for the female and male slave." Um, is so? I mean, is this uh, something that we see elsewhere, or is this unique to the Book of Job or the Tanakh? Well, there is a tendency uh, in the five books of Moses, you know, toward a kind of egalitarianism. If you compare, for example, the slave laws in Exodus uh, 21 with the slave laws in Leviticus 25, and then the slave laws in, hmm, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy is it, uh, 15. Um, um, you see that uh, 
that the earlier laws, uh, the law in, in Exodus especially distinguishes um, the situation of the male from the female uh, slave. That is, uh, uh, males go free after six years, um, and females go free only if they were married to the male prior to his being enslaved. But if he was provided to the slave by the master, she stays, which is, of course, one of the reasons that a male slave may want to stay in servitude, uh, in perpetuity, and not go free in the seventh year. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, it speaks right away, right at the very first verse, about the, uh, the, the, the male and the female Hebrew who might enter slavery, who, uh, who, who, who um, and basically, uh, uh, it's not the kind of slavery that is most familiar to us. For example, the slavery of the American South. But it's, uh, it's, it's, in, it's what we would call indentured servitude. People who owed money, um, who couldn't pay debts or who needed money would go into slavery, um, for a period or perhaps in, in, you know, in perpetuity mm-hmm. in order to be able to, uh, uh, sustain themselves for economic reasons. And, um, they might sell their children as slaves. Um, and we know that, uh, especially from Mesopotamia, but it's, uh, it's, it's also implied uh, in Exodus uh, 21. In any case, um, there is a, a kind of movement toward egalitarianism. And in the book of Job, we see a special relationship that Job seems to have with his servants. He's extremely insulted that his servant, uh, you know, who, who, relied, who he relied on all the time, uh, when he would call him, now that he's been stigmatized, the servant wouldn't come. Even if he begged him, it says that in the middle of chapter 19. Now we see one other uh, piece of evidence, you might say, for a certain egalitarianism in the book of Job. And that's at the very end of the book, uh, when uh, God restores Job's property to him uh, twofold, uh, possibly because uh, when you, uh, the, the, the law in the Torah is that if you steal, you've got to return uh, twofold. What you, what you took. And in a sense, uh, God took Job's children and God took Job's property, et cetera, from him, not through just means, where you could say, well, it's just means only because God did it. But, uh, but it wasn't the right thing to do. And so God gives him back double the property, gives him back 10 children. But it says, um, that not, first of all, the three daughters are named, the sons are not named, the three daughters are named which you could regard as a kind of feminist move. But beyond that, he says, um, it's in uh, verse 15 of chapter 42, page 188 in my translation. One could not find women as fair as Job's daughters in all the land. And he, their father, gave them an inheritance in the midst of their brothers. And uh, following um, a final article by Peter Machinist, I understand it to mean like that of the brothers. In other words, it, as opposed to the Torah, where brothers inherit their father, but daughters don't inherit the father if there are brothers. Only if there are no brothers do daughters inherit their father. And then they have to marry within the tribe so that the uh, estate remains mm-hmm. within their same tribal territory. That's in, in the book of Numbers. Um, in, uh, in Job, he's basically saying the daughters will inherit same as the brothers. 
To me, this is radical. And it's part of the radicality of the book of Job. So what you pointed to, uh, 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 Roni, is, um, is, that, um, uh, is that there are many uh, aspects of the book of Job in which, which one finds something a little different from what one finds elsewhere in the Bible. And one of these, these things may very well be, and I would, I would certainly support that view, uh, a, a kind of egalitarianism. It's not a total egalitarianism. Uh, there still are uh, such things as servants, for example. Uh, um, uh, but uh, one finds that, first of all, the, 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 the character of Job himself is not an Israelite. He's a Ketamite. He lives in the Transjordan, right? You don't have to be an Israelite in order to be one of God's most favored people and or God's most favored person. And uh, you, and uh, Job himself acknowledges that there are people in society who need assistance, and they're as, as deserving of assistance as anybody else. Yeah, that's great. Well, now we come to the end of chapter 31, and it's really a crescendo. And I'm going to read from your translation here, chapter 31, verses 35 to 37. <clears throat> Job says, If only I had a hearing judge... Here is my mark. Let Shaddai respond and let my rival write his indictment. I swear I would carry it on my shoulder. I would wear it like a crown. I would declare the number of my steps and like a prince would engage him. So what is Job doing here? Uh, how is this crescendo working for his argument? And then also your translation there at the end, uh, and like a prince would engage him, is slightly different than the NRSV, which says, uh, like a prince, I would approach him. You point out that this could even be understood as, I would do battle like a commander. So what's the significance of understanding that last piece that way? But then what is also the broader significance of this as Job's closing argument? Okay, well, as I said before, I, I see that the core of this final speech of Job having the intent of declaring himself being innocent and putting the burden on God to prove that God has done justice and not injustice to him. And what he's saying now is this is his, you might say, signing off on the, uh, the lawsuit. Now, I, am, I am now hereby submitting the lawsuit. If only there were a hearing judge, and I could, of course, you know, hand it over to that judge. Here is my mark. In other words, I sign off on this. Let Shaddai respond. I challenge the, the deity to respond to my uh, claims. Let my rival, that's God, write his indictment. And if I could receive that indictment, I swear I would carry it on my shoulder. I would display it. I, I, that's all I want. Right? I, my, my, my goal is not to make God look bad, but to find out why God seems to think that I've done something bad. Right? That's what it's about here. And I, I, I would display it. And then he says, yes, I would be happy to to declare before God everything that I've done, all my steps. And like a prince, I would engage him. I use the word engage rather than approach uh, because it's used uh, in, um, in military contexts as well. And the word karav, of course, is the Hebrew word for battle and uh, the same root. And, uh, and I think that uh, that's being implied here. But as I say in a footnote, 
There's, you can also understand that the, the word for prince is also the word for a military leader, Nagib in Hebrew, the one who stands in front, out in front of the army. And, uh, the, and the word for engage, uh, as I said, uh, also implies engaging in battle, doing combat. And the reason that I emphasize this, you know, there are many uh, double readings or double entendres. Some of them I point out in, the, in my footnotes. A few of them I'm able to incorporate into the translation. But this, of course, is the whole sentence I couldn't do, uh, incorporate into the translation. But it's significant because when God responds to Job in chapter 38, he responds in a militant fashion. Right? Uh, if we'll just uh, look at the very beginning. He says uh, in chapter 38, verses 2, 3, who is this who obscures good counsel using words without knowledge? Bind up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you help me know. Okay, so bind up your loins like a man is what you do, right, when you go to battle or when you go into belt wrestling or however you want to interpret it. It's been interpreted that way too. But whatever it is, it's a combat. Yeah. And God speaks to Job out of the windstorm or the, like the, um, the whirlwind. What's the significance of that? Well, God has, in the Bible, of course, is one. And so, uh, even though there may be passages where it's implied that there's, you know, that God is one among other gods. But I think in the book of Job, clearly it's monotheistic and that uh, there's one God. But one of the chief personae of that God is to be the storm God. And the storm, because in the land of Israel, right, uh, productivity and uh, reproduction, everything depends, fertility depends on rainfall. And who makes it rain? The storm god. Now, all Near Eastern storm gods, including the biblical one, are warriors. And you see it in the Bible in a number of places. Uh, for those who want to look at a very nice example, uh, look at uh, Psalm 18 sometime, starting with around verse 7 and 8. Uh, or you just look at the Sinai Theophany, where God appears to the Israelites on Mount Sinai in chapter 19. What are the uh, what, what are the natural phenomena that accompany him? Thunder and lightning, right? Thunder and lightning. Kolotu Rakim. And um, uh, God, God's role as some God warrior, right, is uh, is emphasized here by God appearing out of the storm. And, yeah. and when God appears out of the storm, it means God is in warrior uh, mode. And uh, and so I think that understanding Job's uh, final uh, words to God in chapter 31 as being kind of fighting words, uh, it, ex it helps explain uh, the fighting words with which God uh, responds to Job uh, in chapter 38. Great. Well, Ed, uh, drawing on the genre that biblical scholars like to use, uh, which is the genre of the blurb, right? Whenever we pick up a book to take a look at it to see, hey, who's endorsed it? I, yeah, the back of there, there's some, book. Uh, some quite some nice blurbs on the back of uh, Ed's, translation. Uh, translation here. I, my my perfect my favorite one is Ed Simon, author of The Millions, who just said 
masterful. <laughs> Just one word? <laughs> one word blur. <laughs> well, he, wrote, he wrote several pages, but that's the... That's that's the, the word term. that they took out. But it was very favorable, and that's the term that the publisher chose nice. to yeah. print on the back of the book. Well, that'll, that'll work. That's really all you need. If that's the one word you got, that's all you need. You don't need more than that. Well, Ed, is there something that you'd like to blurb for us and for our listeners? It could be a book. It could be something else, like a movie or whatever you'd like <laughs> when you when you produce uh, something like this translation which you know which, which i invested you know uh, decades of research and uh, uh, 10 or more years of actual you know writing from this time i started writing the translation till the time it was published um, um, you know you you do develop a certain intimacy with the subject i say that actually at the beginning the preface of the book i think uh, that uh, you know, I I developed you know a very close relationship, you might say, with this text, and I'm somewhat enamored, you know, of 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 the text and of what I've done with it, mm. um, because it's it's not the same as the traditional received text of the Book of Job. It's you know my version uh, of Job, but I I would I would I'm ready to justify everything I've done in the same way that I would justify my translation of let's say a text. You know, from the ancient East that I worked on, and there are such texts as that. Uh, but I will say that you can find um, on my Academia the Edu site, and also uh, on the internet, I believe, uh, an, an essay in which I explain where I specially have found meaning, and others might find meaning and inspiration in the Book of Job. It's an essay, it's a short mm-hmm. essay that was invited um, by an organization. Uh, called, uh, I think, Psyche, and you can find it uh, by Googling, you know, Greenstein. Uh, I, I think you can find it that way. You know, um, I, um, uh, when you're finding inspiration in the book of Job, or something like that, where I explain a number of uh, virtues, you might say, uh, that one finds in the book of Job in general, why this is a book uh, not only for ancient times and not only for the history of interpretation and for you know, uh, and for scholars and clergy who have found a special interest in it, but I think it's it's something that should interest everybody, even those who have no theological interest in it at all. Right. It's, uh, it's not only about that. It's about moral virtues. It's about integrity. It's about standing up uh, for what you believe is your truth and right. the speaking truth for power. And well, it's a- uh, that's my blurb. Great. Well, it's appropriate that in light of the clear love that you have for the book of Job and the the time that you have labored over translating it and interpreting it, that you would blurb the book of Job itself uh, to us and recommend our readers to to dig into it once again. And I can recommend your translation as a way to get a new perspective, to think of verses, uh, passages in new ways that you hadn't thought of them before. And I've appreciated it uh, for that regard. So I'm really grateful to you for this translation, but also for taking this time with us to walk us through these chapters and touch on so much else along the way. Thank you. You're welcome. It's good being with you. Great. And to our listeners, uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, even partly as much as we did, and you want to translate that enjoyment into some kind of concrete action, well, here's a suggestion. You could go to uh, iTunes and you could rate this podcast and you could put in there, you could translate 
that enjoyment that you had into a good review, or you could share this with someone else. You could translate um, it to them. Right. And translate it to them, maybe add, you know, some notes along <laughs> right. the way about here's some points that you might want to pay attention to. Or you can go to our Facebook group and you can ask questions. If there are questions you've always had about chapters 29 to 31, or maybe other aspects of Dr. Greenstein's translation that we that you have, maybe we can um, send him emails. I don't know if we want to promise his time to do that, but <laughs> we we will we are uh, we will do our best to try and help you out uh, in our Q and A episodes along the way. So until next time, thanks for joining us on the journey. Shalom. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarland, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plonk, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.